So we are now at Sutra number 241, and it reads this. One gains, we should know actually that we are in the middle of the Niyamas. We have explained the Niyamas, just because we've had a two-week break here, even though of you are following it. We've explained the Niyamas, and now what's happening is he is explaining what perfection in each of the Niyamas looks like. And this is the second sutra devoted to the concept of purity. So just before was, for one who becomes fully cleansed and pure spiritually, there arises a disinclination for physical contact with others and for the touch of one's own body. And that's what we talked about um, two weeks ago when we last met. And then he says, one gains moreover, he's continuing, when one is, uh, has complete purity of spirit, a purely sattvic outlook, the ability to concentrate one-pointedly, a cheerful attitude, mastery over the senses, and an ability for intercommunion, which is really quite a lot, isn't it? Um, let me just go back. I want to look here, see exactly where we were. When I was, I was just going back to number 232. Purity used to be translated as cleanliness, Swamiji writes, but that is what is impure and unclean is that which obscures the presence of God. That's why, so if we're, if we've compl- well, if we're completely pure in our consciousness, what we have done is we have taken away everything that obscures our relationship with God because... This is this essential point of yoga, which we're always having to emphasize and re-emphasize, which is that we don't have to become anything that we're not. We just have to stop preventing ourselves from perceiving who we actually are. That's why we use the word realize instead of the word attain, because we just come to know it. So that's why when you become perfectly, when you've removed everything that obscures your perception of God, you can concentrate, you're cheerful, you have mastery over the senses, and you have inner communion. It's a lot of promises. And when we were talking, we need to shut that door. Yes, please do. Yeah, it's too loud. Um, the, uh, there you go. Yeah. Um, okay, let me just find myself again. This is, when we started talking about this last week, we were talking about last time, we were talking about how in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this is just a, a, these are two different masters from completely different contexts and completely different eras. And yet here is Patanjali saying exactly the same thing. When you have perfection in the niyama of purity, then you have an ability to commune with God. Um, the important point about all of this on the spiritual path, so much of the spiritual path is just learning how to... I keep, I've lost my bookmark. There it is. Um, is learning to have the confidence that if we keep going on the spiritual path that it's going to come out the way that we expect it to come out. And a lot of that really has to do with the fundamental perception of our own nature, that I, I just, it, it goes on endlessly. And I have watched it in myself for many years. I've largely broken the habit, I think. But I see it in everyone who comes to me. It's all about what I can't do. 
It's all about what I'm not doing. It's all about how I ought to be doing something else. It's all about how everything that I, you know, I should be like this, I should be like that. And we don't have any, you have no idea how much damage you're doing to your spiritual life. I mean, we think in our minds that we're being helpful to our spiritual life because we're always emphasizing sort of all the things that we need to get, get, get going with. I had a, an experience in my very, very brief career as a corporate trainer, very short, because it was really like a totally unsuitable profession for me. So I did it for a short period of time, and one of the uh, workshops that I gave was actually, it was about leadership, and it was about trying to help the people under you to do better. And I am, among the reasons why I was really terrible for the position, was that I have never, ever worked in those settings, and I probably would work, be horrible. I would never succeed having to be subject to so many other people's points of view and having to conform to a certain reality. God spared me. Let's just put it that way. So, um, or else I would just have to be the boss. I would be like David did when, before David came to Ananda. He just created his own enterprises and ran them according to his likes so he didn't have to conform to anyone else's culture. It was a an intelligent appraisal of his own nature, I think. Um, and I'm sure if I had been forced to do it, I would have had to do the same. But in any case, I was trying to talk to people about Swamiji's very basic premise, which is you emphasize people's strengths. You go with your strengths, you emphasize the strengths, you, you can ride stronger on what you do well than you can on constantly emphasizing what you don't do well. So I had um, a group of people in there, and we were, we were trying to talk about their own positive qualities. And it was just amazing to me how quickly everyone turned the conversation to actually the things that they did badly. And I, I actually, I ran a woman's retreat, I remember once too, also this was the other circumstance, in which I suggested that everyone introduce themselves in terms of their strengths you know, what they're good at, what, what they're recognized for, what they particularly enjoy, what gives them energy. First one did okay. The second one was half and half. By the third one, it was over. We were back to what, what troubles me, what I suffer from, what's not going well. It's, it's like we're, this is how Satan really holds us really powerfully. When I was in the corporate setting, people were just absolutely convinced and would not be shifted that if they didn't pay attention to their weaknesses, they would never get better. Just as simple as that. That their strengths would take care of themselves, and the only progress they could ever make was to constantly hammer on what was wrong with them. I mean, we tried to discuss a little bit about the psychology of the individual. I mean, think of it with children. If you have children and you constantly explain to them how they're failing, I mean, how does that work? And why are we any different? We're in bigger bodies but we're really just the same sort of insecure little people that we were when we were small. But when children are constantly only told what they're doing wrong, they don't get better. They gradually shrink and become more and more insecure and more and more nervous. And, you know, you can, I don't have to spin that one out. You, you know that. Okay, here we are in our spiritual life. And we have Divine Mother who loves us completely. Many of us are disciples. We have a guru who is absolutely committed to seeing us through whatever our difficulties are. And how do we think about ourselves? 
Oh, I didn't meditate enough yesterday. I haven't done my kriyas every time since I promised. I said I would do this, and then now I'm not doing that, and I really could be so much better, and I still have a desire for this, and I made that mistake last night. And somehow in our minds, we have the same belief as those, those people did in that corporate training session. If I don't keep emphasizing what's wrong with me, how will I ever get better? I've told you before about the woman who came to Ananda, stayed very briefly, For some reason, Swamiji took an interest in her and really wanted to help her. Um, And he invited her, included her in various occasions, but she began to decline his invitations. I mean, to satsangs or um, just to smaller group activities. She declined them. And she explained that when she spent a lot of time in his company, she forgot her problems. And she was very concerned that if she didn't keep remembering her problems, she would never actually fix them. So she, she wanted to not be in his company because it, it, it distracted her from the necessity to worry about the things that were not going well. I mean, it's, it's painfully comical, but all too easy to grasp, isn't it? Okay. Now, I'm not talking about sort of airheaded irresponsibility where we just get to announce that I'm perfect in the eyes of God and therefore I don't have to do anything. The premise of this conversation is that we are sincerely and actively engaged in our spiritual lives and we are on a daily basis, to the limit of our ability, we are going forward with all the strength that we have. And of course that becomes dicey because I know I'm not trying hard enough, it falls into that. But I mean, if we're basically sincere, and this is where many years ago, remember, when Swamiji told me when he was passing out compliments and my compliment was that I was very sincere and I felt that that was uh, really the, the consolation prize for being so lousy that there was nothing good he could say about me. Like, you know, he needed to be honest and he didn't want to hurt my feelings, so that's what he said to me. But later when he saw my distress, because I became quite distressed over what I thought was um, him trying not to, Trying to, trying to let me down gently. He was amazed that I didn't understand how important sincerity was. And he actually said to me, sincerity is everything. So what I'm talking about here is that if we are sincere in our desire to be a devotee, and we're not just sort of entertaining ourselves. By this I mean, for example, this, was a, he was, this man didn't even pretend to be a devotee, but once I, a, a visitor came to Ananda retreat at the time when our retreat was up in the uh, when all our public programs were up at the seclusion retreat down that long dirt road and this man just wandered in I think he was just looking for community he just hitchhiked in and I gave him a ride up to the retreat and I gave a class there on reincarnation and then I, I drove him back and when we were all by ourselves in the car in the middle of the most desolate area where nobody could eavesdrop he turned to me and he said, do you really believe all that stuff? <laughs> and he was like, you can level with me, there's no one else around. And I explained to him, yes, in fact, I was being completely sincere. But Because there are people who will follow the path and kind of go along with it, but, but in private, they really, they're just going along with it. And when they have the opportunity, they raise doubts. And that's what I mean, that's a lack of sincerity. That you're just kind of coming. That's the way that a lot of people go to church. And one of the nice things I, I really like about coming to this temple is that there's no social, political, 
financial or career benefit from coming here. <laughs> Absolutely none. It won't help you in any of those areas. There are churches in this area that people go to because it uh, increases their networking possibilities. And, you know, there's some, they just have status. People who are wealthy go there. People who are successful. People who are good in certain areas. So people go to those churches for a variety of reasons. And I love the fact that this church is useless to you. <laughs> Unless you sincerely, you see what I mean? Sincerely want what's being offered here. And so what we need to really work on is our sincerity, which is to say to bring more and more of ourselves to the table. You know, just more and more of our uh, longing for the spiritual path to make it more and more profound. I found uh, recently some, uh, something that Swamiji had said in, in the early 70s. I found a note about it. And he was talking about what, what makes you successful on the spiritual path. And one of the qualities was that you understand following the spiritual path is a matter of life or death. That it isn't just a casual thing. And that's, again, what we mean by sincerity. I'm here because I recognize that this is what my life is all about. I'm not doing it out of habit, out of convenience, uh, because it's a pleasant place to be, because I'm lonely. I'm there because I'm really sincere in it. Once we have established that, And that's really what you want to work on with God. Just to establish in your own heart that insofar as I'm capable of showing up, I am here. And whatever else I'm holding back is not because I'm trying to. You understand the difference? And then we need to deeply and fully and completely accept that we really do belong to God and are loved by him. I think how annoying it is in a human relationship, for example, where you're good friends with someone and have been taking care of them for a very long time and they constantly doubt your sincerity or they constantly doubt um, that you're really going to be there for them. Isn't that annoying? Have you had friends who treat you like that? I had a friend once who there was a misunderstanding between us and she just immediately accelerated it to a global level. You know, well, it's clear that I'm not, you know, I don't belong here and that you don't want me here. And I just, I became furious is the only thing I could say. And when I tried to refute it, the person insisted and I finally just said, you know, I'm, I have, I'm the right, I am the one who has the right to say this. And I, I wanted to get her attention. How dare you treat me like that? How dare you distrust me to that extent? You know, after all these years or whatever it had been, all this time, how dare you doubt me like that? You know, the person thinks they're being uh, humble. You know, I'm not really worth it. I'm a bad person. No, no, you're actually being insulting to the person who's befriended you. And see, that's how we keep ourselves from God. Is that we spend so much time imagining that we have to meet this impossible standard and everything that I'm bringing right now is of course inadequate and because of all these things it's perfectly obvious that I'll never really be a good disciple and that we're always doubting whether God loves us. You see how it's a constant insult and how can, how can God break through that unless we ourselves just let it go? These are the things that keep us. And there's that wonderful story, um, Narada, the angel, 
who was the uh, messenger of Vishnu, who was sent down to, the, to earth to find the best devotees. And he found this aging anchorite who'd been meditating in a cave for 80 years, and Narada was so impressed with him and thought he was definitely the best devotee he'd found. And then he also found some drunken lad who was trying to put, put holes into posts into holes he dug, but he was so drunk he couldn't even get them in. But the whole time he was talking to God about, you know, how drunk he was and how much trouble he was having. And Narada just barely made a footnote about this guy because he was so clearly not with it. Now, you've all heard this story, but it's a very important story. And then afterwards, the Lord says to Narada, you know, he, just, he didn't know anything about this aging anchorite, this 80 years of dedication. And Narada himself was outraged. But Lord, he's given you everything. How could you not know him? And then he sort of casually mentions this drunken fellow in the, in the post holes, and the Lord smiles, ah, yes, he said, that man, I know him well. And then he sent Narada back to test, and he said to the anchorite, the Lord says he'll, he'll come to you as soon as he finishes passing a thousand elephants through the eye of a needle. And the old man just became furious. Well, what a ridiculous waste of time when he could be here giving me God-realization and he just says, I'm fed up with this whole thing, and he goes away. And then he goes to the drunken fellow, who's still inebriated. He tells him the same thing, and the man says, he goes into an ecstatic joy. He said, what is it to God to just pass elephants through the eye of a needle? He's going to be here in a moment. Now, it's all about what they were expecting, who they thought they were, and above all, how they themselves perceived the God that they were loving. The anchorite was making a deal all the time. You see? This is the Vaisha level of being a devotee, and this is one of the things that we all have to work through. You know, this is the progression from a Shudra to a Vaisha, Kshatriya to a Brahmin. At the Vaisha level, you're honorable, you'll, you'll give good value, but you'll only give good value because you know you're going to get good value in return. And so we get on the spiritual path, and there's a, there's a lot of us for a long time that have, we're, we're making a deal here. And if we're excessively concerned about our own shortcomings, part of the reason we think like that is because we're still making a deal with God. We've got a Vaisha relationship here. Our perception of the universe is a Vaisha perception. There's, there's no unconditional love. There's no belonging to the divine light. It's just a deal. If I'm good, it'll happen. If I'm not, it won't. And very often we have that same conditional relationship in the way that we relate to everything in the world. We're always measuring. Measuring and weighing and making decisions on the basis of that. Swami Kriyananda, once when we were just talking about some personnel issues and, you know, to have... Some jobs are just very complicated and you, a person needs to have multi-dimension skills. And over the years of Ananda, some people were better at what they were assigned to do than others were. Or there were positions that simply couldn't be filled because there was just simply no one with the right combinations. Or our shortcomings just made a mess of situations often. I count myself in that number. And Swamiji, in one of these conversations, Swamiji said, it's tempting 
to think about your friends in terms of the virtues they have or the virtues they lack. And it's tempting to think, oh, if this one just had more of the qualities of that one, and if this one was a little bit more like this. He said, there's no point in going there at all. There's no point in even starting down that road. Because once you do that, your relationship to people then becomes a matter of weighing and measuring. Whereas the way Swamiji always related to us, he saw us very, very clearly. He saw us more clearly than anybody ever saw us. But he just saw us. There, there wasn't, it didn't follow afterwards. He just saw us, as I was saying on Sunday, as jivas in the process of moving from ego consciousness to liberation. And who and what we are was simply who and what we are. It wasn't good, bad, better, worse. It just simply is what it is. So he would perceive a person's strengths and weaknesses. And given their strengths and weaknesses, okay, what shall we do? And it it never was, I love you more because, I love you less because. You're more useful to the work because, you're less useful to the work because. This is who you are, this is what you have to do. And when we practice that in our relationship to others, then it's easier for us to assume that relationship toward us also. I think I shared with you, I have shared with you, some of you remember when I had a a, a night of actual physical fear when I was trying to learn to scuba dive and I became a little phobic. And I went through a night of extreme anxiety because I was a little nervous about having to go underwater the next day. And in the middle of the night, I was wondering, I just wondered, why am I so scared and why am I finding so little comfort? And there was a, a, a relationship drawn like that between my lack of compassion for a struggling devotee that I, that I knew and my lack, the lack of compassion I was receiving from Divine Mother in that moment. Now, don't misunderstand. It wasn't that she was withholding from me. It wasn't like, well, you were nasty, so here's this. It was more subtle than that. It was that I had created a universe in which, there, which compassion was not the automatic response. When people were suffering, I was impatient. So I was suffering, and what I got was what I'd given. It was just like there was no way the divine force could break through because I myself had set the rules. You see how that is? I mean, we think. We think we can be so casual. Oh, I don't like her. I don't like him. She's unpleasant. Have you noticed what she did? You know, just we think that we can be like that, but we don't have any idea what we're setting in motion. We don't realize how we're just um, sabotaging all our happiness. And that, and, and, but the opposite then becomes also true. When we, re, we, st- we remove those things that keep us from our relationship with God. It's just, we are, we are so loved by our Divine Mother. Remember that uh, quote from the French saint? If you knew how much God loves you, you would die for joy. And just contemplate that for a moment. And there's no conditions on that. It, it doesn't say anything about anything. It just makes it as a simple statement. And every saint and every master just confirms that. That we're always living in a state of grace, but we don't allow ourselves to experience it because we're so busy weighing and measuring ourselves and the entire world around us. Thus, 
when we stop doing that, we get a purely sattvic sattvic outlook. And here he says, "Um, a purely sattvic outlook makes one see only the good in everything. Now imagine how that feels, to just see only the good in everything, whatever it might be. I've just been um, listening to Swamiji's last book, Love Perfected, Life Divine, which I've talked about a lot of times. Um, and I did the audio book of it, which you can find on Ananda's, on Asha's website. Um, you can find Asha's website by going Asha Joy or Naya Swami Asha, either one. I, had made, a, I made up a radio handle for it. Because try saying Naya Swami Asha on the radio and how long it takes you to spell and communicate. So Asha Joy is what it, the title is. But um, let's see now. Um, let me just find where I was with it. Oh dear, I lost the thought. No, I, I know it was just, I was trying to remember, but I was listening to it. I'm in the part of the book where the heroine, I've been listening to it myself just to hear the story again, where the heroine is in the house of the guru and she's going through her, her, her ordeal, is the, only, is the word they actually use, where everything about her is pushed and tested. I remember what it is. And the first uh, test that she faces is she's just sitting alone in this little room. It's all very dramatic, but she's essentially by herself. And this huge, dark uh, cloud, this dark being, begins to materialize in front of her. And she becomes... Um, understandably intensely frightened. And the, the power of that darkness is projecting upon her you know, all of her fears. It's, it's not a passive force. It's an active dark force coming to her like this. And she um, of, begins at first to be very, very frightened about this coming. And the way she gets out of that fright is by... Um, going deeper into her faith in God that nothing can happen outside the will of God. And that if this has been sent to me, then this is going to take me someplace that is going to be good. This is where I need to go. And so Swami writes, a purely sattvic outlook allows you to see the good in everything. And, and this is just a, a very dramatic example of it because it's just pure blackness. It's just pure blackness coming at her and then she, she, she finds the power in her own soul that says there's no such thing as pure blackness. Everything is, is part of God's plan. And if this is what God's plan is for me, then what am I afraid of? I was asked an interesting question. Let's see where it was. It was at the... Um, at Spiritual Renewal Week, one of the evenings, um, I, I sat at a dinner table and anyone who wanted to ask questions came and sat with me. And a gentleman, Darshan, from uh, Italy, asked me, he said, what is the hardest thing that's happened to you on the spiritual path? What has been the most difficult thing that you've had to face on the spiritual path? Nobody ever asked me that exactly. So I had to stop. Um, I had to stop for a minute and say, that's a very good question. Let me think about it. This is the answer that came to me. It's related to the book, too. I said it was 
during the litigation, the SRF lawsuit and the Bertolucci lawsuit that followed, having to face this particular loyal lawyer who was utterly immoral and, and unscrupulous and dishonest. He was completely evil. That's actually how Swami described him. Quote, the closest thing to the personification of evil that we are likely to meet in this lifetime. That's quite a statement. I mean, I learned from being with him how a person could be a Nazi. I mean, I, underst- I understood lots of things that, that you don't understand. Like, how could educated people behave like that? How, how could all of these horrible things happen? Being in the room with that man, I understood it. Because he was a channel for evil. That's the only way to describe him. He was trying to destroy Ananda. He was trying to destroy Swami Kriyananda. And he enjoyed doing it. And it was like, I I couldn't actually see it, but I could almost see it. I could see like demonic forms around him, literally. Um, Not quite, but almost. You just could see them kind of moving. There was this like dark moving energy. And I said, that was really something. Because life is very different once you know the dark potential. Now, here's where it's relevant. The obvious thing that happens when you meet that kind of evil is you're broken by it. You hide, you become frightened. We had an amazing demonstration of how conditions are neutral. It's how you take them. When Richard Wormbrand, the Christian man who was imprisoned by the communists in Romania for being a Christian preacher and for standing up for Christ and went through, he he wrote the book called Tortured for Christ, which is a horrible name, but it's the right name for the book. And he's a great holy man. He's probably passed away by now. He came to speak in the Grass Valley when we were all living at Ananda Village in Swamiji. We all had so much respect for him. We all went to hear him talk. And we filled up you know, this whole room. And there was another man with him who had been through the same experience that he had been through, but that man had been broken by it. So Richard Wormbrand was just radiant. His body was, he had trouble with his body, but he was radiant and strong and filled with this light and this joy, and this other man was small and um, sad and you know, he witnessed in the same way that uh, Richard witnessed, but it had broken him. There was just no way that you could take it. He'd, been, he'd confronted evil, and he couldn't find God on the other side of it. Whereas Richard Wormbrand had been confronted with that evil, he found God on the other side of it. So what we have to understand is when we're talking about this kind of purity of heart, this isn't just, oh, we're just, having a good time here. And that was when I was talking to Darshan about that question. I said, but of course, that was the making of us. Because prior to that, in the first so many years at Ananda, it was just a party all the time. You know, we were just having such a good time. And Swamiji was in charge of everything and all the burden was on him. And he just made everything happen and we just followed along. And it was just... I wouldn't say effortless, because that would be underrating it, but it was innocent. And there's a certain strength in innocence, but there's a greater strength when you 
come back to innocence because you know about evil. Or you know your own weaknesses. The, the three points uh, that Swami made, the middle point was that you have to know it's a matter of life or death. The first point is you have to be absolutely honest with God and Guru and with your own conscience. And, and part, of, part of the um, ability is just... And part of the reason that we you know, hold ourselves away from God is that we don't have that capacity just to say, this is my best. This is exactly how much I want God. And I also want all these other things. Or this is simply who I am. I mean, that, that happy drunk, what made him so accessible to the divine was that he just was what he was. And he loved God wholeheartedly and believed in him. And he also had a weakness for alcohol, but the love was all there. All right, you had a question? You have to pass the microphone and you have to speak into it. The microphone, please turn it on. It should be on. It's not on. It's yellow. Please, it's not on. Make it green. It should be green and just stay green. Okay. Please speak. I really like the example that you had given um, talking about um, the evil and I just wanted to share something, kind of a question or get your thoughts on it. Um, I've always been so very attracted to the light and so much so that if there was anything that I perceived in myself is not um, positive or light or this or that, there was this judgment. Um, and then I just, I had this insight where this light and this darkness creating the two sides, I think it creates more illusion because ultimately... I feel like there's discernment in knowing your truth and going towards what is what is true, but I feel like the default of getting too attracted to the light is that you can become a judger of the other side of being darkness, and then there's these two wars of duality, and then you're not you're in illusion again. You're just creating two different sides. No, that's not true. I'm sorry, that's just not true, um, because there is no. When you, are, when you are in spiritual light, there is no opposite to it. That's what I'm saying. Okay. No, no. There is, so you, you give yourself to the light, and if you're truly following in the divine light, uh-huh. um, there, there is no increased judgment on the other side. Because if you're in the light, everything, everything looks like light to you. Got it. it. It's, yeah. It, because everything is light, there is the, the, the shadow is an illusion. And when you're really in the light, there is no duality. That's like when um, the desire for God uh, is not a selfish desire. And there is no alternative. There is no, as I say, balance to it. When Swamiji said to Ananda Ma, because Ananda Ma gave Swamiji a great deal of attention, he said, I feel selfish for taking so much of your time. And she says, that to desire that which dissolves the ego cannot be selfish because selfishness is a, f- a factor of the ego. So to want the light, um, and if we find ourselves, quote, judging the darkness, it's because we are not really in the divine light. We are just in uh, an emotional affirmation 
of positive which will find its opposite. And if we ourselves find that, and this is what happens to people because um, we get too much into affirmations and not sufficiently into experience. And this is why the first point on being on the spiritual path is you have to be absolutely honest. It's a very fine point that we've discussed in other contexts where you have to know what your reality is. You can't merely affirm something that you just hope is true. You have to know where you stand, then make a choice. And the affirmation that's based on knowing where you stand is very different than the affirmation that's based on trying to mold yourself into something. I was uh, in a situation where there was, I, I, there was just a lot of affirmations where I was, and, uh, you know, just uh, things for sale. And I realized everywhere I turned, I was looking at an affirmation, and I felt like somebody was always telling me what to do. You know, be the light, be this, be that. Affirm, you know, and I just, I felt bullied. <laughs> and I, but I realized it was, there was a subtle attitude. You know, it was exaggerated because there was an uh, uh, excessive number of affirmations to my way of thinking. But I felt pushed, like I was always being told what to do instead of actually being able to feel what I should do. You see the difference? And to be able to feel what you have to do is you have to know who you are and where you stand. You have to be absolutely honest. And then once you're absolutely honest, then you can choose how you're going to be. But what, what you say reminds me of when I said to Swamiji that there, I, had, I remember I have two, had those two friends, one I, was, I loved and one I didn't. And I decided the reason I, didn't, I disliked her was because I loved this one too much. And that was when Swami, I said, well, maybe I should love her less, and then I would dislike her less. Swami pronounced that the stupidest idea he'd ever heard. <laughs> because it, I needed to transcend going out a much bigger direction. Okay. Thank you. I agree with what you said. I, you, what you described, I felt like got it at another level because okay. I just felt that sometimes when you go so much one way, there's that other, the ego judging sort of anything that doesn't appear to be what is light and that could actually bring you into this darkness of duality of looking at both sides. But what you describe really hits it really deeply when you say about when you're in the light completely, then it's sort of like everything is that. There's no shadow, there's no reflection and to just be gentle with yourself in the process. It's a very... um uh, Master's teachings are quite remarkable, and Swami's uh, practical articulation of them is really quite remarkable. And it bears a superficial resemblance to many other articulations, but when you really get into it, there's these very subtle differences which make all the difference in terms of actual transformation. So the point you brought up is really important. And that's what we're talking about here, which is to really remove anything that keeps us from God, allows us to have a purely sattvic outlook, which allows us to see only the good in everything, but not naively. And, and in fact, uh, when, uh, when we were in- engaged in that litigation, which was from 1990 to 2002, it was a huge issue for lots of people in the community because people did not want to acknowledge that we really were dealing with something that just 
couldn't be affirmed away. Or let's just be nice, or if people don't like us, it must be our fault. But to actually really realize that sometimes you just have to stand up and fight, like the Gita has there, it was, it was not a small test. I remember there was one woman in our community during those years, many of you, some of you were with us, we would meet in our house every week. We were having various meetings, and on a weekly basis, virtually, I was, we were updating all that was going through, and it was very tenuous and tempestuous. And people were processing all of the different reactions, because these are very natural reactions to have. And we, we worked on it for years, literally. And as things got worse and worse, which they did, we were sort of progressing through it in a gradual way. It's if there was this one woman who chose not to attend any of those meetings, but finally the pressure on the whole situation got so bad that suddenly she couldn't ignore it anymore. And so she comes and talks to me. I said, where have you been? And she said, well, I just decided I would just ignore that, ignore everything, but now I can't anymore. I said, well, that was a pretty dumb strategy, wasn't it? You know, just to pretend that everything was fine instead of having the courage to really be honest and look at life as it actually is. Because all that we're doing then is we're building a platform on top of nothing. Um, Dina Nata, a man who lived in our community for a long time the, um, in Ananda village, Swami Kriyananda's crystal hermitage, as you know, is built on a very steep hillside. And at a period of time, the monks had their dwellings further down the hill from where Swami's house was on, on a very steep slope and they had trailers and teepees and this man built this little house and it was very nice and he had it all nicely furnished. He does things in a very nice artistic way and he'd even moved in a refrigerator which was like luxury that you can't imagine to have a refrigerator. He'd moved a little refrigerator into this and just when it was all exactly perfect it fell off the mountain <laughs> and the whole thing just fell and just slid right down the mountain all the way down to the river, which you can barely see the river, it felt that far. He was honest enough to say later, his spiritual life was a little bit like that at that point. <laughs> it, was, it was built nicely, but the foundation wasn't solid. And he said when his house fell off the hill, it just was like, it was a wake-up call that was unmistakable. You know, it's like, oh, I need to sink deeper roots. And refusing to really understand that there is an actual opposing force. And to, to try to see good everywhere because we're not willing to be honest enough to recognize that some things are simply not good. That also then makes us, it's difficult for ourselves, you see. It's again, it's, it's a bargain. It's a conditional situation. We set certain conditions rather than actually just relaxing and saying, all right, what's happening here? Who am I really? What's really happening? Otherwise, we get super blindsided. I got a letter recently from a man who, you know, he, he just finds himself in this incredible personal turmoil, all because of his own, own lack of dharma and lack of self-control. But he'd been busy over here working on samadhi. <laughs> you know, and then he was blindsided by vice in his own nature. It's because we have to, we have to really be perfectly honest and really recognize what we're working with. Yes, Tricia. Regarding the honesty, self-honesty question, 
because I don't think any of us like to fool ourselves or or not really be honest, but how do you um, address our attempts to be completely honest with the fact that we are delusional or in delusion? <laughs> so we, we don't know. I think it's uh, with amusement, you know, just like, I think having a sense of humor. Swami only gave three points. The, the third point on that note was uh, to do your sadhana, essentially, to practice regularly. But the fourth point is to be able to laugh at yourself. And you can't be better than you are, and you can't overthink it. You know, so we just, we just are what we are at any moment in time, and that's where sincerity becomes the issue. You know, I'm sincere, and this is how I feel. I, at, at this perspective on my life, I'm just amazed, just amazed by the things I did and thinking I was just trucking along so well and I was so out to lunch, so to speak, in, on so many levels. But even then, I was very sincere about it. I just, I couldn't be smarter than I was. If you're six years old, you're just six. And that's sort of how I feel. It's developing a childlike attitude towards yourself and just not taking anything so seriously. Just realizing that we all just do our best. We're, we're, we're really trying to do our best. Even this, you know, uh, confused uh, situation that I was dealing with where the person is working on karma that isn't really their karma, the only thing you can do when it blows up in your face is, well, here we are. Now we know. The house has just slid down the river, down the mountain, and is in the river. I guess I have to deal with something other than what I thought I had to deal with. You know, we just, we just get surprised. And we see the good in the situation. Well, I guess there's something good in this for me that I didn't know was there. Humility. We, it, it, the, the spiritual path is a strange balancing act between a sense of intuitive awareness that I'm doing the best I can do and the, uh, the complete understanding that this could be all wrong and it might turn out to be all wrong. But as long as I think it's not, then I have to go forward and be sincere and, and be humble about it. it. Just the ability to just be so easy about being wrong. I mean, it's something that we have to cultivate. We just have to cultivate the fact that I was just wrong. I thought I was doing the right thing and I just wasn't. It, I, among the ways that you can measure your spiritual life, I've just, I noticed a growing ability in myself to just be wrong and not have any need to act like I wasn't. Whereas for much of my life, whenever I made a mistake, it was, it was such a trauma that it took a long time to be able to just stand up and say that this is what I've just done. Um, so that you practice all the time. Just being laughing at your foibles, not, um, n- not exaggerating them, but just still... As someone said to me, this was actually the man who was responsible for introducing me to the spiritual path. And it, so this is how long ago it was. It was when I was 18. He, uh, he said once, I have this feeling if I could just get like a quarter of an inch away from myself, I would find myself much more entertaining and amusing than I do (laughs) where I'm standing. (laughs) And I always think about that. I've remembered it ever since. Standing right here, it feels very serious. But if I could just get this tiny bit away, I would just see that I'm just on my way to God-realization and this is what it looks like. 
You know, this is just what it looks like. And, you know, a child who's very much loved by um, its mother, a child who's, who, whose parents um, adore it and nurture the child appropriately. I mean, one of my friends who was, was a very good mother, you know, when her son brought her a sort of half-baked piece of work, she encouraged him, but she also said, you can do better than that. You know, she didn't just say, oh, it's wonderful. I saw some little YouTube thing where this, the millennials, I guess is what they call themselves, they did this sort of mocking thing about the problems of the world. And they were talking about how they'd been raised and she held up a fistful of medals that she'd won just for being she said, <laughs> you know, and then that's sort of the era she grew up in. You just got a medal just for existing because everyone was so afraid of competition and so on. You exist, therefore you get a gold medal. And that's not true love. I mean, I'm not, we give out medals to everybody who participates in our joyathon every school year, so I don't want to say too much against it. But if you're really loved, you know, you, it's all right. You're not loved for what you've done. You're loved for who you are. And if you're loved for who you are, then what you've done is extra. And if it's... I, I remember when I was a child, f- maybe nine or ten, I had a, a couple of friends that in retrospect, one particular, in retrospect, I think it was a very bad household. I think there were some real, real unfortunate things going on in that household that I was just too young and utterly too naive even to imagine. I was well into my 20s before I was able to look back and, and deduce what was probably going on in that household. But, but my girlfriend and I, this girl, we got in trouble. We did something bad. I don't remember what it was. But I was, I was just going to go talk to my parents about it. It was just so obvious to me. We'd, we'd messed up in some way and I would go talk to my parents. I knew they would listen to me. They would hear me out. They would be respectful and they would be appropriate. She was terrified of her parents. She was terrified. And, I, and that was the first like, well, yeah, but can't you just go talk to them? You know, just, and for her it was all about how to keep them from ever knowing. For me it was just about going and telling them. It was, you know, very vivid. So even if we're, we're raised badly, didn't, weren't fortunate enough to have good parents, you have divine parents, that's the good news. And you must be very careful not to confuse the two. Not what? Confuse the two, but to recognize that you don't want to project upon divinity the failings of humanity. Let's take a break. Does someone have a question? Yes, pass the microphone over, whoever it is. Okay, go girl. Is there an opposing force to getting things done? Uh, that's that's uh, tamasic energy. I mean, that's the three gunas. Uh-huh. I mean, sometimes it, you could call it the dark force, but go ahead. Well, uh-huh. I was thinking how many things... How, many, how much energy goes into this running this church? How much energy goes in into just um, the Sunday service? Mm-hmm. And and if we if we um, just do as much as we can, you know, we might not get it all done. So we need to you know maybe push ourselves a little bit to get even more done. 
and and so I, I was a couple of times I started to f- kind of feel like if I could just let go of that attitude, then I would just be able to. Well, there's about three or four different ways to respond, so I'll, I'll start with the first one. You remember the story in the path where, where that, there's that woman, is it Mrs. Brown or somebody, who's work, work, work all the time, and Master um, uh, has her with him in the kitchen, and he just keeps making a bigger mess, and she keeps trying to clean up behind him, and he keeps making a bigger mess, and she keeps... And she's just frantically, frantically trying to keep up with him. And finally she realizes that she just needs to stop. And then suddenly he becomes more normal in the way he's cooking and he's not making such a mess. And then in another context, another woman, he just kept giving her, he told her, you work too much, you've got to work less. And then he gave her more work to do. And then he scolded her again for working too much. And then he gave her more work to do. And finally she said, Master, instead of calling it work, why don't we call it service? And then she, he said to her, your whole life you've had this attitude, work, 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 work. And the very thought of it makes you tense and makes you anxious. So it isn't just the quantity of what we do. It's the, um, it, it's the way we define it. It's how much we're egoically identified with it rather than just letting the energy flow through us how much we're attached to the result, how much we're trying to mold the actions of others. There's all these different things that are involved that all relate to how it feels to us rather than how it actually is. And so one of the reasons that Swamiji has always had us all work very, very hard, well, one is because that's what we signed on for. You know, we are the next generation, the third generation now, second generation of disciples. And there's just a lot to be done. This is just not a lifetime in, we just, in which we get to think about what we would prefer to do. We have a lot that we have to accomplish. Now that's one part of it. The other part of it is from the Bhagavad Gita commentary. And when he talks about the three gunas, and you can go look it up, and he, it's just so simple. It's we have to master in ourselves the inclination to be tamasic. And to be tamasic is to, to, to allow the idea that leisure is more pleasurable than work. Uh, what, what somebody used to call the vacation ethic. You know, some of us are quite committed to the vacation ethic instead of to the work ethic. The idea that if we do less, we'll feel better. It's one of the three delusions. It's, it's the form of the, of the delusion of wine, intoxication. If I can just go low energy and be unconscious, then that's the way to really be happy. And we have to master within ourselves all of the, of the um, misunderstandings that prevent us from working at, a, at a, a very refined level of perfection. And it's not for the sake of the outward perfection. It's that if we don't strive for that perfection... We are not mastering within ourselves that inclination to be tamasic. And I've always known you had to strive for excellence, but that just put it exactly as it needs to be. So, you know, the, com- the complexity and the amount of things that we do around here, before we had an in- such an inherently complicated situation that required so much involvement to make it happen, we used to periodically create such events. I mean, literally... 
well, we still do. We do them now because it, now we do it because we have a, a large family to serve. I mean, really, when, when David and I were here with Chidambar and a few others at the very beginning, um, we used to literally say, okay, we're going to have a master's birthday celebration that's going to be, you know, we're going to have all these activities in the afternoon and we're going to rent a church over here and we're going to completely decorate it and we're going to serve a huge Indian banquet and then we're going to have this kind of music. And we did it just so that a whole lot of people could get engaged and serve and the motivation would be there for people to transcend and then discover how much fun it was to serve together, to do beautiful things, and to overcome our limitations. And now we don't have to go to extra trouble. It just happens naturally. But it was, it was really what drew the family together, really, literally, was serving and creating, uh, doing things for God in that way. And we did. We made them as hard as we could make them, really. And then we, we seeded, they seeded the group here. We, we, we invited people down from Ananda Village who knew how to do things, and knew how to work in this way, you know, to, uh, to be the core leaders, to train people. And it, it worked. It, you know, the energy came together really beautifully, and, and now it, it runs on its own. But it, it's for our sake, because what would we be doing with our time otherwise? And yeah, and this, on this planet, everything is just such a drag. I mean, I just, you know, David and I live together in that one house. We have no children. We don't have any, we don't have any pets. We hardly have a garden. Just, you know, the amount of stuff just to keep your life running. It's just endless. Endless. And it's an endless project just to, to always... It's what the nature of this planet. I would much rather be in the astral world and just materialize the mango and, you know, just not have to go to the grocery store and put the, put the stuff away. <laughs> I like an evil force. You know, you were saying that um, people... When with that attorney or, or the, the lawsuit, people some people were just affirming or, or trying to ignore the whole thing like it was going to go away, but, but, but in reality, um, we know e- evil tamasic is just downward pulling, evil is a whole nother dimension. I mean, we're not, we're not dealing with evil when I complained about having to go to the market. Well, no, no, it, it no, don't, don't think that. No, no, evil is something quite else. Evil rejoices in the suffering of others. It's quite different. I mean, it's evil in the sense of it's... Um, I, won't even, I don't want to use that word. It's just uh, tamasic. It's a perfect word for it. There really is no other word. It's tamasic. It's just contractive, downward pulling. And sure, that's not as good as it could be, but that's what we're fighting against. We're just, it's, we have to overcome the, the influence of the gunas and to overcome the tamasic impulse. That's the simplest way to call it. That makes you crabby, makes you tired, that makes you resentful, makes you tense, all those things. Those are all tamasic energies. And here, we're here. We're at our church. We're so lucky to be here. We're putting on this fabulous thing. We should be happy all the time. And if the whole thing fizzles, I had so much fun when David and I were guests at the Rhode Island Center. And uh, I think uh, Biraj and Lahari were there at that time, and Shant- uh, Prem Shanti and her husband Larry, who's now Om Prakash. Um, and Swami was visiting, and it was a big deal. He was visiting. It was a huge thing, and a number of, maybe even all the colony leaders had gone just to be there, and they had planned this whole thing. They only had a small house, but they had an outdoor tent, 
and it was all perfect, and they'd, they'd, they'd rehearsed it, they'd made it just so, um, a few days ahead of time when it was 80 degrees. The day of the event, it was about 45, and it was pouring rain. But there was no indoor space, it still had to be outside, and I, my heart went out. Then you know how beautifully Lahari makes things. Well, she laid all these silks, and you know, there was all this stuff, and we're all in there in our coats, and our, our, you know, shoes and everything's covered with mud and people are walking and all the silks are getting trashed with mud. It's pouring rain. All of the beautiful, you stand here and you stand there and I'll do this and I'll do that. It was totally a mess because of everything. And we had no responsibility. So we were just there. And I leaned over to David and I said, you know what? I can see because... I, I do these things. What was intended and what happened, I said, this is a good lesson. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> what really matters, I mean, it would have been nice, and it was, it, it was appropriate to try, but what really matters is the joy. And everybody just surrendered. You know, we had to, we had no choice. Everybody just totally surrendered to the complete mess. And we had an absolutely wonderful experience. But... When people are crabby, even if it all goes well, it's not any fun. So you have to figure out what, what is perfection. Perfection is overcoming your own tamasic energy, and if you're creative enough to think about it, you ought to do it. I mean, right now, I went to Los Angeles, and they don't use cotton balls for their fire ceremony. They just burn the alcohol just plain. Yeah, how about that? So, you know, so we're, we're, we're on it. This last week, it made this horrible black smoke, which we don't understand. So now we have to figure out, because it didn't make horrible black smoke there. But you know, once it's there, you've got to move. Because to not do so would be tamasic. We could improve it. Let's improve it. And you know, there's just this tendency to just, well, you know, it's good enough like it is. But that's, you know, that's not the same as when God rains on you. That's when you yourself just won't put out the energy to make something better. Then you just get older and duller and duller and older and older and duller and finally God just takes you off the planet. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true, isn't it? That's how Master puts it. People become such psychological antiques that there is no choice except to have them die. <laughs> you don't want to go there. No, no, because then you just have to start over in a kid's body. <laughs> Okay. No, no, no. I just wanted to ask about the um, when you had to face the lawyer that you say was the personification of pure evil. Mm-hmm. How did you respond, and did you respond the way that you wished you were? You pleased with your response? How did I, how did I respond? Well, I was always really close to the situation, and therefore there was no part of me that could doubt what was going on. And there was a part that was just shocked. Just shocked. How someone just would lie all the time. And in fact, um, Swami wrote about it in his Gita commentary. He called it very, people, very, very tamasic people. Or he talked about the, the fact of sometimes people lie just for the pleasure of the confusion that they can cause by lying. And I said, oh, that was that attorney, wasn't it? Swami said, yes. I mean, he would just do random things. I have here all these documents which he just picked up. They were just the telephone book. I mean, he would just lie about anything. 
just for the fun of the fact that he could. And so there was a, a period of time where I, I just thought he must be kidding. But I very quickly realized that he wasn't. And after that, I was grateful that, um, that we've advanced enough so that he couldn't actually put me in prison or anything like that. I, was mostly, I mostly found it rather interesting. Um, I, I found it infuriating and horrible also. But one particular time I was sitting literally across the table. This was when I really got it. And my friend Nidruva, who's a black woman, was sitting next to me, a Jew and a black woman. I mean, we had a really interesting experience. And that was when I think I said that this in here recently. I really felt that he, if he could have shot us, he would. Or just, I just got it. It's like we did not, we did not exist as the same uh, reality as him. He had completely created that we were other. And it was extremely interesting to me. And that's how I realized that people do these things. They look at you, and because you're a Jew or a black person or a Tutsi or a Hutu or whatever it is that you happen to be on at that moment, that is completely different than me, and therefore I can do whatever I want to you. And that was very, uh, that was a warning to your own heart. You know, you can't separate yourself from anyone because it opens the door to all kinds of things. The only time I was ever really tested, and it was so trivial, was when, uh, actually it wasn't the worst guy, it was his, his deputy. He was pursuing me and harassing me, uh, just harassing me, and I just turned and faced him really fiercely, and I was so proud of myself. <laughs> and I did it very spontaneously. I would have to say, honestly, I wasn't deeply tested. I wasn't tested, so I don't know what would happen if I were really deeply tested. Yeah. I learned a lot, but I don't know what would happen. I had only one small experience, and this was so trivial. This was quite a, lot, a few years ahead before, though. I was, uh, David was driving Swami's car, and he was driving Swami back from Carmel. We had driven down from here to pick Swami up. David was driving Swami in his car. I was driving our car behind them. I didn't quite know how to get back because I'm such an airhead about directions. So I was following them. And it wasn't really like I would have gotten lost, but there was part of that. We pulled up to a stop sign. Um, We stopped, and David turned like that. I'm right behind him, and I want to turn. There was this man in this big truck. He saw that I wanted to turn, and he pulled his car just in front of me so that I couldn't for absolutely no reason except, I mean, I looked at him. He was evil. He was, an, he was an evil man. I looked over at him and he just looked at me with this, you know, this power he had over me. I burst into tears. I can almost cry about it now. I mean, it, you know, it was so trivial. Uh, it was partly I was trying to follow Swami and they stopped me, which also frightened me a little. So there was, it was a point, but, and I, I still remember, that was my first experience of evil in my whole life. It was, he was just cruel for absolutely no reason. And it, it, it completely unnerved me and still can. So that's why I have to say I wasn't really tested. And God willing, we never will be. I was actually reassured <laughs> when Swami said the closest thing 
to the personification of evil that we are likely to meet in this lifetime. I clung to that because I hope this is the worst. But we can't be sure. And we can't be afraid. And I am, but we shouldn't be. You know, that's when I, I did that book. I, I read that audio book, Loved and Protected. And I was in a circumstance. I was in Gorgaon, India. I had a couple of days with nothing to do, really. And I, we had access to this wonderful recording studio. And I was going to do Ask Asha. And then it just popped into my head that I should do Love, Love Perfected instead as an audio book. And I really wasn't sure exactly why I was doing it, because I, I certainly knew it wasn't going to be a profitable product. That was a certainty. But the, the story is of this woman having to face all her fears and having to go through this ordeal, literally a trial by fire by the end of the book, just facing everything that she's afraid of that keeps her away from her spiritual realization. And... Man, I just was, I was just in the corner of this little studio and, um, you know, my companions all got bored, so mostly they weren't there. I'm just all by myself with this engineer who didn't speak great English. You know, he's editing this book, he doesn't, English is not his first language. Anyway, um, but I, you know, I was just there, you know, the dark cloud, you know, the evil force, this fear, this fear. I went through the whole thing with her. And I realized that's why I was reading it, you know? Because in order to read it, I had to go all the way into it. And, you know, the thought is in your mind, what would I do? What would happen? In the end of the story, she has to climb this high cliff, and there's this evil being in the wind and the cold, and, you know, what would I do? This one, and among the reasons why it's such a great book, And always, of course, she succeeds. She always comes back to her absolute faith in God. You know, it gets very, very wild around her, and then she just comes back to it, you know. She comes back to herself, comes back to what she really does know. And given that, what is there to fear? But it's a long, challenging cycle time and again to get back there. Love perfected, life divine. That's where you get to the life divine. Well, that sounds to me like the end of the class. (laughs) All right, great souls. Thank you. We did one. We did one sutra and it was uh, 241.